Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We are on episode 126. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, May 16th, 2021, at 1 o'clock Pacific time. I am your host, Terry Plecknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plecknett and Zach Saltz. How is it going, guys? Great. It, you know, this poster uh, of Road of Perdition in the background, for all our listeners who can't see, it, Todd has positioned his head strategically so that the <laughs> Tom Hanks' top hat is, like, on his head, sort of. It kind of mm. looks like, I don't know, it kind of looks like like Warshock from Watchmen or something. Like, it's this odd sort of combination. <laughs> I can't quite explain it, but it, it works really well. Thanks. <laughs> I have Tom Hanks directly above my head. I've got a Green Mile poster on the ceiling, right, right there. I'm sure you do. I do. I I'm do. sure you have every Tom Hanks poster in that room. I mean, it looks like, you know, a, a lot of stuff going on. There, there's a Castaway, Green Mile, and the Terminal. Those are the three Tom Hanks posters I have up. We have one oh, Paul Paul 13. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, Paul Thirteen. That's that's over there. That's over there. Are you going to get a Seattle Kraken poster? Kraken. Kraken. Dude. I thought I thought about getting like one of the sweatshirts that like some of the like pullovers look look pretty cool. Have they started selling merchandise? I, I mean, I Oh, would, they, they started selling merchandise like a year ago. As soon as they announced the name, the next day it, there was stuff out. Well, I I expect uh, some of that merchandise to make an appearance on this podcast at some point. Although I do see Todd representing the party pit today, which is yeah. really, really nice to see. Yeah. <laughs> Since it is now deceased, unfortunately, two times we went. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like the coolest place to play blackjack in Vegas. Very nice. Very nice. Well, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm drinking some Agua Fria today from the Starbucks cup. Perfect. Perfect. Todd. Uh, I'm drinking bourbon. This is the first call bourbon, which is a great name for a bourbon, and uh, it is really good. Now, if you had another one called Last Call that you could drink at the end of the podcast, that would be just poetic. Like bookmark or bookend it bookend. with like shots of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So uh, I we had a run to Ridgewalker Brewery today, and... Uh, this is this is not a Ridgewalker beer, but it is a uh, it is from their tap. It is called Breakfast Stout. It is a milk stout with coffee and vanilla beans. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Someone wanted to go with like a blazing hot like tequila or like something like that in honor of you know fighting fires, or well, Ridgewalker used to have a local heroes. IPA that I was gonna get, but it's not on tap anymore. Mm. Yeah, that that was that was what I was thinking of going with. Anyways, let's uh let's get into this first. Uh, thank you guys so much for uh for listening and watching. Make sure you um you subscribe, rate, review, check us out all over the internet. 
Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, of course. We are also on YouTube. You can find us at almostsideways.com for links to everything. Also in the show notes of any of our episodes. Okay. It is now time for uh, what are what have we been watching? We're going to start with Zach's Criterion. All right. Well, I actually have two movies to review today. One's a, not oh. a Criterion, but I'll try to go fast. So my Criterion this week is uh, from 1965. Let's see if either of you could get it. Maybe Todd more likely. But it's one of the few um, Oscar-winning movies uh, that won. It, it won an Oscar for foreign film, and it also had an acting nomination, and it's from the 60s. Do you have any idea what it is? Because it's a movie I wasn't too familiar with, and it's part of the Criterion Collection. I don't know. It is uh, the winner for, of 1965 Best Foreign Film, The Shop on Main Street from uh, Czechoslovakia, which was nominated for one Best Foreign Film and also had uh, the next year uh, nominated for Best Actress, Ida Kaminska. And it is directed by, it's actually co-directed, Jan Kotter and Elmer Close, and it tells the story of this uh, small town in Czechoslovakia in 1942 after the Nazis have invaded uh, in the Sudetenland, and uh, it tells the story of this kind of local, like, loser guy named Tono, and he's played by Josef Kroner, and uh, he is um, a Gentile, and his brother-in-law is basically, he, he's basically been this total collaborationist Nazi conspirator, and as a result, he's been appointed this kind of bigwig position in the town, and so he gives his dopey brother-in-law um, this title of... Uh, uh, of uh, controller, um, Aryan controller. And what happens is this dopey brother-in-law gets to take over this shop on Main Street that's run by this old Jewish lady played by Ida Kaminska in her Academy Award-nominated performance. Uh, so basically it's one of these movies where, you know, this uh, the, the main character is someone who um, doesn't really have a position about anything. He's sort of fooled by the Nazis into taking this uh, you know, symbolically important role. But as he gets to know this older Jewish lady um, who runs this shop, and, you know, she's a sweet older lady. She really does. She's not with it very much. She's a little, you know, suffering a little bit of dementia, not quite aware that there's a war going on. He starts really uh, emotionally connecting with her and basically kind of comes to her defense as the Nazis kind of steamroll into town. Pretty good movie. I wouldn't call it the greatest movie. It's sort of predictable in some of its beats, but I think it has some intriguing direction. It does some very like sort of avant-garde experimental things. There's some dream sequences in the movie. You can tell very much that it's coming from this kind of new wave. It's a forerunner to the Czech new wave tradition in, in Europe. So it very much kind of goes against what, what conventional depictions of uh, World War II would have been at that time. Pretty cool movie, three stars worth checking out. But the other movie I watched, which is not part of the Criterion Collection, the only reason I bring it up is because Todd and Adam recommended this movie to me, and it might actually become part of the Criterion Collection, who knows, is a mo new movie called The Killing of Two Lovers, uh, which mm -hmm. I saw in a theater, directed by Robert Makoyan. Um, and uh, it tells the story of uh, the uh, marriage breakdown between um, David, played by Clay Cawford, and his estranged, uh, I guess, sort of ex-wife, um, Nikki. And they're, go they're going through issues. What's kind of curious, though, what makes it sort of interesting is that they have four kids. They're both in their 30s, and uh, he lives like 
two blocks away from her temporarily with his father. Um, the movie's kind of shot in this kind of stylistic gambit of four by three, and there's like loud industrial sounds on the soundtrack. I think the director really wants you to think this is like a gritty, you know, stylized uh, movie about this guy's like anger that his wife is, you know, seeing someone else and has basically chosen to dissolve their marriage. He tries to fight for the marriage, but, you know, he's also torn by this really uh, anger, seething anger that kind of um, uh, manifests itself in various situations. Hence the title. He kind of daydreams about killing both of them. It's a really interesting movie. Not my favorite movie. I think the stylized, the stylized aspects kind of got in the way of the storytelling for me. And as I, as I texted Adam earlier today... As I was watching, I kept on thinking about that, but Melissa Villasenor's uh, sketch from SNL a few years ago where she sang all about how all the Oscar-nominated films at the 2019 Oscars were about white male rage. This is another movie about white male rage. I just can see her like singing that song. Um, <laughs> but it's a good movie nonetheless, and I applaud the, I applaud the director for making it super indie and nonconformist in a way. So it's a solid three-star movie that's, that's definitely worth seeking out, even if it could have been a little better in some parts. Well, I'm glad you you liked it, and I'm glad like it actually got a release to the point that you could see it because it is a really low budget movie. She was nominated for the Cassavetes Award at the Spirit Awards, which is how I saw it. And yeah, I I mean I really got into that movie. I, I think Clay Crawford it gave one of the best performances of this year so far, and I yeah it, it's it it right now is squarely in my like top five of the year uh, going forward. Yeah, it's a very Jim Cummings and Thunder Road type performance where this yeah. guy is like just kind of falling apart. You had texted me, or maybe Adam did, one of you was like, this is a total Zach movie. Now that is a red flag, okay? Anytime you tell me it's a Zach movie, it, ends, <laughs> it usually ends up sucking. Like Anna and Manchester by the Sea, you called both of those Zach movies and I was disappointed by both of them. But this one actually turned out to be pretty good. And uh, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. I don't know how widely available it is on streaming platforms, but I don't think it's totally necessary to see it in a the theater. I think it's a pretty cool movie to just kind of see, you know, to seek out on your own. All right. All right. Very good. I still need to see that one. Todd, Cager time. Okay, my Cager, the 36th edition of the Cager, is uh, a really bad movie called Astro Boy. Uh, it's directed oh. by David Bowers in 2009, uh, based on a manga. Uh, yeah, okay, so it's about this rejected robot boy whose newfound, like, superpowers he uses to fight back against the evil forces of the Metro City government, and he becomes a hero of some sorts. Freddie Highmore is the main character. Uh, Nichols Cage is his dad. Donald Sutherland, is his, his character's name is President Stone, and he's essentially the exact same character as President Snow that he plays in the Hunger Games movies. <laughs> Uh, Eugene Levy is a really cool robot. I mean, that's probably the best part of the movie. Uh, Ryan Stiles has a voice in here, which I haven't even thought about that guy in years. But Nicolas Cage seems bored. I might not have really otherwise known he was in the movie. Like, I, his voice is obscured in a way. I kind of forgot that that was why I turned it on. Uh, it, it's just disappointing. He's such a non-factor in the story, too. It, it's just, And the animation is really clunky. It's... The, the politics are completely just reprehensible in it. And it's just unabashed, like, bl blunt garbage. I don't know. I, I never thought I'd be watching so many, like, bad animated movies when I started this. Like, it shouldn't have been animated either. It should have been, like, a League of Battle Angel or something like that. But, you know, James Cameron's not walking through that door. I, I the 
human characters look less human than like the non-humans in Pixar movies. They, they kind of look like Taku in Hot Shots Golf. I think Terry will appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> and this was 2009, mind you. Like the, it's it's just bad, really bad animation. I I would rather watch the manga because this is just Hollywood self-gratifying bullshit. Like it's it's a, it was a box office bomb and it really should be half a star. Which is for Cage being like probably half awake when he raised lines. He didn't even really perform them. Uh, number ninety four, which is last on the Cager, even below wow. Out, Outcast. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Astro, Astro Boy, Boy. I, I think it was on HBO Max or something. Don't look. Don't look it up. <laughs> don't don't do it. Don't do it. All right. It's, it's not even the so bad it's good category. It's just so bad. Just avoid it completely. No, I actually had to watch it in two parts, and I think it's only like Ooh. an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> I was that bad. That's brutal. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, now time for my uh, my Oscar anniversary watch. Uh, going back 20 years, uh, it was nominated for Best Foreign Film. It's the first of the five Best Foreign nominees from that year I've seen, which is kind of crazy because there's some really big blind spots in there for me that I'll be watching at some point this year. Uh, this one is out of Norway and it is called Elling. Uh, this is uh, directed by Petter Nice and uh, stars Per Christian Ellefsen and Sven Norden. And it is based on a novel by Ingvar Ambjornsson. I really just wanted to say all the Norwegian names. So uh, I wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, Every now and then when I'm doing these, I, I find just these diamonds that uh, nobody really knows that much about. And this is one of them. This movie is incredible. It is uh, about a, the main character's name is Elling. And he is a very kind of sheltered, um, emotionally damaged uh, 40-year-old man who uh, has lived with his mother his entire life. And when she dies, he is taken in by the state to a mental hospital to uh, kind of rehabilitate and get used to society. Uh, while there, he meets uh, Kiel Bjarna, who becomes his best friend, his roommate. And after a couple years in, uh, in the facility, they are uh, kind of released on a probationary basis to see if they could function in society. And these two men who have no idea how to interact with the outside world are thrown into the middle of Oslo and are forced to. And it is, oh, it's just, it's so, it's quirky fun, yet will break your heart at different times also. Um, it is, uh, and they, they meet different people along the way. Uh, Elling is, a, is a, trying to become a poet and he decides the way he's going to do it. He doesn't want anyone to know who he is, but he he takes poems and he um he uh, tapes it inside of boxes of sauerkraut and then goes and puts them back on the shelf at the at the grocery market, uh, and so people can find his anonymous poetry. And anyways, it it is a remarkable movie. Four stars. One of the best movies I've seen since I've been doing this for the last two years. Uh, and just a huge surprise. So if you've not seen Elling, go find it. It is a remarkable movie. Uh, just so much fun with a huge heart. Uh, yeah, you're going to love it. You are going to love it. Did you have to get the DVD of this? It doesn't look like it's streaming anywhere. Yeah, I, uh, I got the DVD from the library. 
I was able to find it there. That's awesome. I mean, have there ever been any bad movies that have come out of Scandinavia? I've never seen one. I had a, a Scandinavian movie on my top 10 list last year. I like Aki Kurismaki's work a lot. I've never seen Elling, but I've, I've actually heard of it and I've maybe picked up the DVD once or twice, but like Scandinavia is a great place for filmmaking. Yeah, th this movie is like a top three movie for me in 2002 now because it didn't come Whoa. out until 2002. Yeah, top three 2002 film. Really, well, really good. Well, I'm Could sure, Zach, you don't like some Von Trier movies, right? That's true. I don't know. He's Denmark, though. I'm, I'm more talking Sweden, Norway, Finland. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that doesn't count. Do you think this movie could have had an American remake? I feel like it actually had a reasonable. I I think it actually came to the United States, and I remember maybe it came to my hometown. I just didn't see it, but like it ha it has a lot of votes on IMDb. It's not obscure it by any means. Yeah, it 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 um it easily could have had a uh, an American remake. I think. It, it's kind of a universal universal story in some ways. I'm intrigued. Well, I definitely pick your film over Astro Boy if I'm, it's a contest. It, it, it's worth checking out for sure. For sure. Uh, Elling's got some great lines in there. At one point, he uh, so they get this this apartment downtown, and uh, and their their uh, social worker keeps stopping by and encouraging them to do things, and and Elling just says. We have an apartment. Why would I ever want to leave it? <laughs> it's like, well, and then he finally does leave, and here and he goes. Here I am, a walking uh, a walking target for random violence. <laughs> it's it's pretty great. It's just it, it's it's great. And and the guy who plays uh who plays Kiel Bjarna looks like a Norwegian uh, Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber. Well, Jeff Daniels definitely has the Scandinavian look in that movie. Yeah. But I also, I do feel like this can be a movie that you can assign us uh, the next time you win trivia, maybe, you know, in 10 months or so. Yeah. That yeah. would be very nice. Although if you guys can find it. We can find it. Exactly. <laughs> I was surprised I, I was able to find it. I might be coming up on my first one I can't find, which I'm going to be sad about. But uh, anyways, yeah. Check out Elling if you can find it. Now it's time to move into our featured review for the day. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. And this is the latest uh, theatrical slash HBO Max release. It is Those Who Wish Me Dead, Ooh. starring Angelina Jolie and several others. Todd, you're starting us off on this one. Tell us all about uh, all about this film. Okay, Angelina Jolie plays this lady named Hannah, who is a smoke jumper, which is someone who's like a first responder in forest fires, and she's haunted by a previous episode where uh, some people died under her watch, and she comes across this boy who just witnessed his father get murdered by a couple assassins, and she takes responsibility over him and uh, tries to protect him from the killers and the elements in the forest. Uh, it, I can't imagine on paper this is exactly how the movie is supposed to play. Like, it, it's really cut frantically, and it doesn't really linger on a character. As a result, it's sort of disorienting, and every character seems kind of thinly drawn. But And it's a weird return to live action for Angelina Jolie, because it, it's sort of a nothing character. It doesn't really 
is not really one of the more interesting characters in the movie even like and she's way too old for that role i feel like like it should have been like a gina carano or a ronda rousey or something it's more of an actiony kind of role and not a whole lot of emotional range so i mean i'm, I'm like her biggest fan but it was kind of a misguided casting decision it probably was on page looking like emily blunt and sicario or something but it was off um uh taylor sheridan uh wrote the script and directed the movie he uh uh, he, this is a, probably a script that no one else really wanted to do probably similar to wind river but that's definitely in his wheelhouse but he can't really do everything like he's he's a talented writer but his like neo westerns are his forte so like yellowstone or hell or high water that's where he met is most comfortable but if he branches out it probably should have been given to a more polished director to handle this type of material like i think ben affleck or something would be great with this kind of movie nicholas holt and uh governor carcetti what's his name uh aiden gillen are uh, really an oddball combination as the assassins. So there's a little bit of the Gecko Brothers from, from Dust Till Dawn in there with those guys. Um, honorary Oscar winner Tyler Perry, uh, he's hardly there. Uh, he's He thinks he's some sort of younger Ving Rhames, I, I guess. What's weird about, uh, when we're reviewing a movie, I try to like take mental notes about like plot points and for the podcast or like about characters, but I wasn't really able to do it. And I'm not really sure why it was like, I mean, maybe it was too hard to follow. It didn't really make it, uh, or or didn't make, make it possible, or maybe it was like compelling enough that it overrode the fact that I, I didn't really feel like it was working. I mean, like Sheridan can craft a good scene, but like which we talked about a little bit and without remorse. But like here, is, it's just unhinged and it doesn't really work. But one of my favorite parts of the movie was Medina Senghor. Uh, she she plays like the pregnant wife of a police officer played by John Bernthal, who is in every Sheridan movie, I think. Um, and she she's she's a really interesting character, probably the most interesting one aside from the assassins. And she really adds something to the group. And her, she has more layers with her performance than any other character did. I'm torn because I like I feel like this is exactly my kind of movie, but I don't think I liked it. But I can't help but feel like I did in some ways, even even though it had really big issues. Like the, I felt the exact same way about Judas and the Black Messiah. So I guess I'm going to give it the same rating and put it right next to it on my 2021 list. So two and a half stars. All right, two and a half stars from Todd. Zach, where are you at? Okay, so this movie, I feel like Stefan on uh, Saturday Night Live. This movie has everything, right? You've got, uh, the, first of all, you got the natural disaster angle, right? You got the fire in the wilderness in Montana or wherever this movie takes place. You got the badass nonconformist played by Angelina Jolie. We know she's a badass because she's drinking shots at the beginning of the movie. And then she does the thing where she's on like the back of a truck and the parachute. She's like Keanu Reeves in Point Break, okay? She is just a nonconformist. She's not going to listen to anybody, right? And then you got the kid in danger from the mob, right? This is like... The 90s, man. Yeah. Woohoo. Bill Clinton, OJ Simpson. Let's do it. Okay. Why isn't Jan DeBont directing this movie? <laughs> I recast this movie as Rene Russo in the Angelina Jolie role. We got Sylvester Stallone as the cop, Willem Dafoe as the villain, and a young Brad Renfro as the kid in danger. I mean, can we do it? I want to see that. That's what I want to see. Okay. The truth is, this movie, the, the, whether you're going to enjoy this movie completely depends on or not on whether you take it seriously. I thought, oh, shit, Angelina Jolie, she's like an Oscar winner, human rights activist. She does important shit. I thought this was going to be like a capital V, capital I, very important movie, which I quickly read because directed by an Oscar nominee. And I quickly realized in the first 20 minutes that this is not an important movie. This movie is trash. It is garbage. And it is kind of 
wonderful trash and garbage, okay? <laughs> if you can suspend every bit of disbelief in the entire world, if you can embrace a movie that has um, a, a machine gun, uh, a blowtorch, a grenade, I think there's a rocket launcher in there, and an axe, um, you're gonna like this movie, okay? If you're gonna like um, mob mobsters going after the lawyer who's driving across the country, and then you got the cop who's, I mean, this is like, uh, you know, Dante's Peak meets The Client, meets Twister, meets every 90s trope. Um, it's kind of fantastic. I was not expecting it to be this way. I thought it would be a serious movie, but it goes totally over the top. I love that there's a character who literally has his face burned off, but in the next scene, you can't tell the difference, right? I love that there's a huge fire in this movie that only um, has an impact when the screenplay decides that it's going to be a big plot point or not. I love for from one scene, Angelina and Jolie and this kid are running away from danger. And then the next, they're swapping stories over the fire and she's giving him advice about how to talk to girls, okay? This is fun stuff. It is the summer. We're gonna take off our masks finally, thanks to the CDC. I'm ready for some movies. I'm ready for the summer. I hate school. Let's not do this ever again. Let's bring on summer movies. Three stars, why the hell not? <laughs> That's a top five uh, oh, Zach review of all sorry, time. The best reason to watch this movie is I didn't have to pay for it. It was on HBO Max. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Todd, did you go to the theater for this? No, I watched it on HBO. I did too. I did too. Uh, yeah, I, I I have a feeling I'm kind of in between you guys. I'm I'm giving it a, a borderline three star. Uh, and honestly, I, I, I feel like I'm really close to what Zach was saying too. Uh, it is, it felt like a throwback to the nineties. It, it felt, um, and, and really what it was is it, it was this like mid budget fun action movie that we don't get anymore. I mean, it, we're, we're in those times where everything has to cost hundreds of millions of dollars or has to be an indie project. And this is one of those that's in between. And I miss having these movies around. And so I, maybe I gave it three stars cause I was kind of rooting for it. Uh, I agree that Angelina Jolie didn't necessarily fit in that role. Um, I think uh, John Bernthal, I liked him for more in this than I have in almost like anything else. Uh, maybe it's because he had hair. I don't know. Uh, it kind of felt like a role that Kyle Chandler should have been playing. Maybe that's why. Um, just give Kyle Chandler roles to John know. Bernthal. Why, is, why was Kyle Chandler not in this movie? I know, right? <laughs> that's real. Yeah. Um, well, Bernthal is in all these. He was in Sicario. He was in Wind River. Like he's in all of Sheridan's movies. Like I mean, that's true. He he fits that that uh, like hit what he does well. I mean, like he's great in Sicario. I feel like, but I mean, yeah, this is just another another dude. But I mean, I yeah. feel like we're all on the same page here. Like I think so. I, mean, I think yeah. so. I mean, this is my kind of thing. But I wasn't liking it. But at the same time, I couldn't really stop watching it. It was it was just so damn entertaining. I, and whether it was. I mean, whether it was good or not, I thought so. Um, and uh, I, I think it really got interesting once the kid found Angelina Jolie. I thought that the, it, it got a lot more interesting then. Um, Aiden Gillen and Nicholas Holt played played great villains. Um, Aiden Gillen. Oh, I, yeah, I know. I know. Well, Todd mentioned what was it the wire that, that you mentioned him. I obviously yeah. I haven't seen Game of Thrones because if you had, he's Littlefinger. Um and uh, and and Nicholas Holt is always is always good in, in a role like that. I I think it also could have been a lot better. Like if they had focused a little bit more on the forest fire. This I was thinking the whole time and said 
this could have been like Twister for forest fires if they had just, you know, thought, thought a little bit more about focusing in on that. But it was like they wanted to tell the story with as little detail as possible. Like we never know exactly why what's going on and why he's running. And we never really know that much about why forest fires go the way they do. We just know I read the wind wrong. And, that, and that's all that's all we get. And, and, that, and apparently that that's enough. Um, and lightning I, strikes that conveniently knock out the power when the when the screenplay requires it. Oh, yes, of, of course. Yeah, um, like her, the, her little perch thing, like the, the staging of that scene when when they're like trying to get them down was completely ridiculous, but awesome <laughs> at the same time. I was like, I can't believe I haven't watched that in a movie before. <laughs> like, oh, like, oh, if they're not up there, then you're going to burn the place down. Oh, yeah, that, that that's a great idea. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, I was like, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and instead, they just shoot it up. <laughs> yeah, because they go like, yeah go climb the mountain or whatever and go like so they get like so they could look in completely abandoning their post <laughs> you know after they've been had had their faces burned off yes anyways yeah three stars it's just kind of a, it's a fun movie it, it it has it tries to take itself seriously at times but never too seriously so yeah i mean i feel like i would appreciate the marvel movies if they were more like this you know i mean this movie is just unapologetically stupid I, it makes no bones about it. It doesn't try to be anything better than it knows it is. Like the whole like parallel narrative strand at the beginning of the movie is just ridiculous. Like the first ten minutes of this movie make no sense. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I have no it, idea what was going on. It kept cutting every scene like maybe like a minute short. And then, I'm like what went, the hell is that? Went back Where, to Florida, that? and then a house blows up, and then you got Angelina Jolie taking shots and going on a pickup truck. Like what? I disagree. I also, I, I, I do want to point out, I disagree with both of you about Angelina Jolie. I think she's great in this movie. I think she looks the part. I, I don't know she's what. Old. No way. I think she, I, I think this is. Someone a, approaches this 50 is, this chasing is, forest fires. Come this on. is Sway in 20 years, Todd. Okay. This is, this is the sole <laughs> sequel to Gone in 60 Seconds. Uh, it should have been, it should have been an action star. I was saying, like I said, Gina Carano or Ronda Rousey, they would have been they totally fit in that universe. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily like those ones either. I don't know who I would have wanted in that role, but can we also talk about how I'm never going to be able to tell this movie apart from the Holly Berry movie Things We Lost in the Fire because it has the same name and the posters <laughs> are very similar, except one is red and the other is black and white. They are nothing alike. They oh, are further apart. I know, I'm talking about the title. <laughs> In case you didn't get that. Things We Lost in the Fire and Those Who Wish Me Dead. One of which is actually about fires. The other one is about someone who wishes the other person dead. But I don't, I can't, I don't think that. Although also the title doesn't make sense because no one really wants Angelina Jolie dead. So who's the me? Is it the kid? Yes. It must be. Yeah, I was thinking there was no, nothing but the truth going on there. Like the, the whole goal is to get this kid on the news or something. Like it's, I, I don't know. It was really lame. <laughs> I loved it. I wanted to see the interview at the end of the movie. You know, to, to show to show his to show his uh, evidence that's on paper that just got soaked from spending a night in a creek. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I also think that we're we're, we're overlooking the best uh, fact about this movie, which is according to IMDb, Nicolas Cage was considered for a role. I mean, that, that's perfect. <laughs> the real question is which role, because I mean, you'd got to think it would be the Aiden Gillen role. But maybe, maybe it's the 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 police chief role. I don't know. Or I think it's the Tyler Perry role. Oh, that's possible. Perry. that's possible. 
But if uh, we're talking- for one scene, I don't know. I, I feel like he would be more of like the the Angelina Jolie character role. Maybe he'd be like the um the uh the other guy that's always with uh John Bernthal. The old guy. Uh the police chief. Oh yeah, guy. the police oh. the Jeff Bridges role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I feel <laughs> like you're the kid's dad. I feel like one of the oh, things yeah, that was that missing was... from this movie was some good comic relief. Like I thought that when Tyler Perry was coming on, that's what I thought we were gonna get was some comic relief. I think we needed a John Goodman slash P- PSH slash Chris Farley type comic relief in this movie. That is one thing that was definitely missing. And then we would have had a classic on our hands, gentlemen. And I think we would have had to do a deep dive of this movie next year, a la Uncut Gems. Because I think there is potential in this movie for it to be a, an amazing classic. It just, it didn't go quite far enough. It, it went 110% instead of 120%. Instead of different right. director, it, it would have probably played a little bit more <laughs> close to, I don't know, close to something. I just love all- how much time we've spent on this movie. I'm I, I'm also really disappointed that both of you kind of liked it. Like Terry, I'm just disappointed that you liked it. I was really hoping to be the one to defend this movie. I was prepared to come on with both of you just trashing it. I really just wanted to defend it. But I guess in a way, I'm just glad you see the light because it actually is something. I guess it, it is something. <laughs> is it a good I, movie? I don't know. I, I, I mean, think we're all in kind of the same spot. I think I think we are. It's just Zach and I are a little more willing to defend it, and Todd can't. Todd can't get over himself and be like, no, I can't. I just can't. And it's I a Todd almost, movie. I almost went there too. It's that's the thing is that's a Todd movie. So like, what 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 needed to happen, Todd? What's missing there? I don't know. I mean, I I, I I everything I was watching, I was like, yeah, this is exactly something I should like, but it's not working <laughs> for whatever reason. It's not it's not doing it. But I, I yeah, I mean, it was kind of like a train wreck. I could I couldn't stop couldn't stop looking at it. And there's really good advice in this movie, which is that if you ever get stranded in the wilderness, go to a creek, which will go to a river, which will lead to a town. You, you learn something, you know, you learn because as a smoke jumper, she's learned that information. Or was it the father who said it's it? Either way, <laughs> it's good information if you ever get lost in the wilderness. You see, you learn something <coughs> in this movie. I don't know. All right. Well, we've got two, three stars. We've got a two and a half star. We're all basically saying the same thing. It's an awesomely bad movie. It's on HBO Max, and you should check it out. That's about all we got. All right. Well, in honor of Angelina Jolie, let's get into our spotlight segment. Spotlight. Where we are going to do a Mount Rushmore of Angelina Jolie's career. This should be interesting. Um because like Todd mentioned, it's been a long time since we've seen her like on screen, like doing an actual movie. Um, and uh, at least that where she isn't playing a Disney villain or something. Uh, she's done some voice work and things like that, but let, and she's done some directing. So that's a part of it as well. So Mount Rushmore, Angelina Jolie, Zach, you're going first. Are we going to agree that Girl Interrupted is on this Mount Rushmore? I think that Ooh. should be the that should be the the default, right? Or the uh, non, I'm non-negotiable. That. Okay, it has I'm to good be with that. right. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. All uh, right. So Girl Interrupted is on it. Zach, what are you going with? This is tough. 
I don't know. I've not seen any of the movies she's directed. Uh, I'm not the right one to ask. I'm not the biggest Angelina Jolie aficionado. Uh, I think I will go with the the one movie where I was really impressed with her acting, which was Changeling. I haven't seen Changeling since it came out, but I remember being really impressed. She's in like every scene in that movie. She ages in that movie. She's someone who I remember is, being, is pretty vulnerable, but grows into someone who's pretty savvy and cynical over the course of the movie. It's a period piece. She seems to, she acts like someone from the 30s. And if I remember correctly, she even correctly predicts that Col Colette Colbert will win Best uh, Actress in 1934. I randomly remember that from the movie. So being an Oscar expert and a great uh, uh, movie role in a Clint Eastwood movie, I hate, you can't do much better than that. So I'll go with it. I, I like that. I like that one too. That was one of the ones I had written down. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go next here. Uh, I'm going to go with, I, I, there are some other probably better performances, but if I'm going to go with like the first thing I think of when I think of Angelina Jolie, still to this day, she's Laura Croft Tomb Raider. And, and so I got, I got to put Tomb Raider on the list. Uh, it, she is honestly, I hadn't seen her really that badass since until like we watched this movie that we just watched. Um, and, well, yes, yes, salt. Yeah, I guess so. We're wanted and, and wanted a little bit too, but but this is really what started it off. It it she was the perfect Laura Croft, uh, and uh, yeah, it it just those movies are so much fun, and she gave them a, a star power and a and a swagger that they needed. So that's my pick is Laura Croft Tomb Raider. Todd, what do you got? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I'll go with unbroken, which is the one movie she directed. She probably got the most notoriety for like, I mean, she is a really genuinely great director. Like it was, it was a really like hot script that, that she got with unbroken. And you could tell from her other movies, like in the land of blood and honey and, uh, first they killed my father like she actually she is a really talented director and this one is like a big war epic and that she puts together and it's and it's kind of an amazing movie and uh i i mean i, I and she i know she's got another she's got another movie about a war for, photographer coming out soon i mean I, I think her directing career is going to maybe be even more champion than her acting career as if we look back on it in probably 50 years it's possible it's not a movie about the war photographer movie that Terry watched, right? I mean, that that one maybe she would need to bring life to. Yeah. But I yeah. I thought I thought you were gonna go with Gia Todd. I thought that was like a slam dunk. That was, yeah, I mean that maybe was too on obvious. my list. Yeah. The other one I had written down was a mighty wind. I thought she was incredible in that. A mighty heart. A mighty heart, not a mighty wind. <laughs> not, mighty heart. She was a great yes, as that yeah. folk singer. <laughs> with Chris. Yeah, mighty heart. Yeah, Gia playing by heart, George Wallace, everything like she did a lot of really good stuff before Girl Interrupted, uh, but Hackers. Yeah. yeah. No, hackers not not so much. But I mean <laughs> and obviously gone in sixty seconds. Like she is sway. She'll always be sway to me, but I mean, it's not it's not her movie. It is kind of interesting that Laura Cro Laura Croft <coughs> put be put her career on a different trajectory instead of this kind of be, being like this kind of rebellious sort of badass almost fringe character in some of these movies like hackers or like gone 60 seconds mainstream big budget action movie star 
after Lara Croft Tomb Raider, and then her career goes in a different direction with the directing movie. So I, I kind of, I guess, I like that we've touched on different points of her career because she is so multifaceted. Yeah, absolutely. We got the directing. We've got the uh, the up and comer, the uh, the action star, and uh, the uh, the Academy darling. So now I will yeah, say, true leading lady Oscar nominated yeah. role. Yeah, the I tried. That she can be that too. I tried to watch By the Seed. I couldn't get. I couldn't get past the first forty-five minutes. I think. Yeah, that, I mean that's not a, that one's not a good movie. Her her other directed movies, I, I've seen all four of them. They're they're all they're all I mean good in their own ways. But by the sea is kind of not. <laughs> She's not not as good of a writer as she is a director. All right, so the uh, Angelina Jolie, Mount Rushmore. We have Girl Interrupted, Changeling, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, and Unbroken. It's kind of, I like feel it. like it, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, some of these like uh, actors who win Oscars at a really young age, particularly in supporting roles, it kind of derails their their career in a way. Like Anna Paquin was never a big you know A lister, or Timothy Hutton, um, but for her, it kind of just propelled her visibility after it. I think she's kind of one of the rare examples of really success after it. Well, and she's second generation actor. She has whether she likes it or not has had a life that has kept her in the, in the Hollywood spotlight for different reasons. Like a decent parallel for this decade would have been like Alicia Vikander, you know, she wins best supporting actress, but I don't think she's even... goes on to play Lara Croft. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, I don't think she's as a-lister as Angelina Jolie will ever, she, she, she will never be as much of an a-lister as Angelina Jolie, but I don't know. Maybe there's there, part of that is the tabloids and maybe the, outside of the film industry type stuff, but. And she's not an American either, right? Right. Right. Okay. Let's move on. It is time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And Power Rankings today was chosen by Zach. Zach, tell us what we got. Okay, so uh, we uh, we had a lot of Oscar winners this year that were old people. We've already done the old people, uh, you know, acting power rankings. So this, this time we could choose old people for it, but we're making it a little bit different. This is the greatest final movies. And what we mean by this is this could be a greatest performance, the greatest final performance in a movie or greatest final directing for a movie or greatest <laughs> final screenplay, but someone whose career uh, ended after they made this important contribution to their uh, film career. And of course, we hope that Anthony Hopkins and Francis McDormand and Yoon Joon Yoon make more movies, but uh, if they were to... Uh, bite the dust uh maybe you know these films would be on their list i don't know i didn't want to get that morbid but uh anyway greatest final movies i like how you wish that those three would would make more but not daniel kaluuya he can well daniel kaluuya is like what 30 i mean <laughs> he has true. a long long career ahead of him i picked those three because they're old okay okay all right uh yeah so best final films um i'm gonna go first with my number five and my number five, it's probably cheating a little bit. I don't really care. Um, 
this was this was like one of the hardest lists we've ever done to come up with. Uh, I, I thought so. I, we were talking off air before we started, and Todd thought it was easy, but I this was just hard to research. Be like, How are well, you cheat. I don't know. I'm I'm cheating. I'm cheating. So it's and not it's, the last movie. No, yeah. Well, are you talking like Doctor Parnassus here or what? No, 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 no. So this is, um, this is someone who was an actor director, and it's the last movie he directed, but he acted later on. That's how I'm cheating. Okay. Anyways, my number five is uh, Buster Keaton directing The General. Uh, and it's even more cheating because he actually was a uncredited co-director on other things. But uh, this was the last solo directed movie he had. And I'm going with it because it's a classic. Uh, it is a true Buster Keaton film. Uh, and in some ways, it was the last uh, true Buster Keaton film. Because after that, he had to join a studio and it kind of corrupted the rest of his career. Um it's uh, it, it it's just an, an incredible film as he's he's just a simple guy trying to get his uh, get his train back and uh, and get the girl and he ends up with both and the fact that he never was able to uh, to keep going in his career in a similar way to like what Charlie Chaplin did uh, and and control his own career like um, like he did uh, is just kind of a shame so I. I Truly, if there's a way to cheat on this, that this is it. So number five is uh, Buster Keaton's direction in the general. In what world does this even qualify for the list? Like, I'm looking at his IMDb here, man. He's got like several decades of movies after this movie. That are uncredited co-directing. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, he was in these movies, though. Well, yeah, he acted after, but... You, you it's said... not like part of him died as a director, but then the <laughs> acting part of him still lived. You can't do that. We're talking about final movies. That's what I'm going with. I mean, there's a little bit of wriggle room with some people, but that that one's just... That's, a, I mean, that's, that's pretty makes, out there, Terry. It makes no sense. <laughs> uh, I mean, he literally made Steamboat Bill Jr., The Cameraman. These are all after uh, The General. And those those are almost as famous movies. Yep, but this was his last directed movie. And then he was in Sunset Boulevard. I mean, as an actor, as yeah. himself. Oh, I know, but, I know. Well, whatever. Okay, this uh, is it, already it, going off the rails. Yeah, that, that's that's the furthest off the rails I could have gone. I almost didn't put it on, and I was just like, screw it. I, I, everyone always screws up the list anyway, so let's let's go with it. Let's start out with it being screwed let's up. Let's start out with it being screwed up, yeah. Let's set the All bar right. pretty high there, Terry. I know, I know. All right, All right Todd, number five. Uh, my number five is City Lumet's last movie, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah, I saw that coming. You know, Lumet was, he's one of my five favorite directors, and um, yeah, this is a movie I actually, the only one of his I actually got to see in a, see in a theater. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke just at the absolute peak of their powers. Marissa Tomei, Albert Finney, Amy Ryan, Michael Shannon in small roles. Like he never lost any touch as a director. As his last movie, this is like his angriest, most like violent out there movie that I ever saw him do. And it was kind of a box office swap because it was billed as like a sort of a heist movie or something, but it's it's more of like a difficult family drama. And it's got like really horrifying morality questions. And it's it's just a beautifully directed movie and a, and a, one of my one of my favorites that he that he did. I, I wrote a piece on him after he after he died, and it was like soon after this movie. It was yeah. Sunny Lumet before the devil knows you're dead. I thought about putting that on my list, but I literally don't remember much of anything about the actual movie. Just that it was pretty good. 
but I don't really remember anything. Okay. Yeah. It's a good pick, and I don't think Lumet made a lot of great movies. See, that's that was one of the trickiest things about this list, is that there are a lot of great directors who I feel like didn't necessarily make great movies toward the end of their career. Lumet was one of them. I mean, he oh. made good movies, but compared to his earlier movies, like, he made Find Me Guilty, right? And that was like, Yeah, eh, that whatever. was a good movie. Uh, and then he made that one movie, uh, like, Night, was it Night Falls in Brooklyn or something like that. Like, he, he did a lot of kind of, like, middle-brow stuff. But that one... Not my favorite movie, but that one had amazing performances in it. And unlike Terry, I actually remember quite a bit of it. It was a really visceral movie that um, had a, a really strong impact, even though I didn't think it was as great as you did, Todd. That's a good pick, in part because he actually died, and it actually was his last movie, unlike Buster Keaton. Night Falls on Manhattan, I think is what you were thinking. Yeah, Night Falls on Manhattan, yeah. And, and I know the world that of Devil Is Your Dead was actually a first-time writer, which made it interesting. And he was like an older guy; he was like in his sixties when he wrote his first screenplay. And it, so it was sort of a an interesting mash of new talent and old talent. And uh, I think it's a great movie. But yeah, all right, Zach, number five. Okay, number five on my list is uh, someone I was just uh, exchanging a, a couple texts with Todd about this week, and then I decided, screw it, I'm just going to go with it. It is Louis Mal. <laughs> Number uh, for uh, his last film, Vanya on 42nd Street, which is a movie that apparently Todd had never heard of, but it is a movie that is a great movie. It is my number eight of 1994, and it is one of Louis Mal's best movies. It is uh, a set entirely in this kind of like drab, rundown theater on 42nd Street in, uh, in Manhattan, and um, it very much takes on the same sort of tradition um, that Louis Mal dealt with with My Dinner with Andre. In fact, Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn are in the movie, and it is basically a staged reading of Chekhov's play Uncle Vanya. And what's interesting about the movie is that I've never quite seen another movie do this. It's actors rehearsing the play, but they're not performing for an audience, and they're not exactly on stage either. It's like some experimental theater exercise that maybe Andre Gregory would have talked about in My Dinner with Andre, where like the, the people are just like living as the characters in Uncle Vanya in this kind of weird room. In fact, I, I'm looking up at the, the movie. It uh, apparently, um, Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory and uh, uh, Julianne Moore and a few other people who were part of the cast like did this in people's apartments. This was like their thing in the early 90s. So Louis Mal put it on film. Louis Mal was kind of cast out by the establishment in the early 90s, late 80s. Uh, he wasn't really considered uh, an American director because he was from France, but the French never forgave him for leaving. Um, so he was kind of in this weird place and he did some really sort of idiosyncratic movies like Damage and uh, the one about uh, the ship cannery in Mobile. I remember, I can't remember the name of it, but obviously one of the great movie directors of our time and uh, Vanya on 42nd Street, which by the way is one of the great movie titles of all time, is a really cool uh, artsy movie with some really great performances by Julianne Moore. Um, and uh, uh, who's that actress from uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs? Uh, Brooke Smith. Re really good movie worth checking out, and I doubt it will ever be available on anything but an old DVD from 20 years ago. Gotta go for the library in that one. Maybe maybe it'll be, it's right next to the shelf with uh, Elling. Maybe, maybe. Why is that I a great title? Oh, Vanya on 42nd Street? Like, that's an amazing title. What? It's like you got... 42nd Street is a movie. Yeah, it's a, you got like classic Russian um, literature meets Broadway. I mean, who doesn't want to see that? That sounds fantastic, especially something that Miles would want to watch. 
I don't this know is how I've the conversation originally seen... came up. We were talking about the uh, Miles's favorite movies of 1994. See, this is the the, the lives so that we came have. up because you it... wanted to talk about this movie, and you said that that would be his number one. <laughs> it would be Miles's number one in 1994, not Paul. I don't Fiction. think he's ever heard of it. I think I think he saw it. Now, was Victoria a huge fan of it? No, but Miles liked it. Maya would have liked it too. I don't know if I've ever seen a Louis Mall movie. Oh, we got to change that. Well, I don't know if I would start with Vanya on 42nd Street, <laughs> but uh, it's it's certainly a good movie. All right. All right. Well, moving on. Number four on my list, uh, I think, is one you can't really argue with. Um, I, I didn't cheat for any of these other ones, is what I mean. Uh, and po- probably also part of the... Uh, the inspiration for this list, and that is Chadwick Boseman in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, and and really, you, you could kind of talk about his whole 2020 year uh, and wrap the five bloods in that as well. Um, and I think this is one where it's a powerful performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The five bloods is a par- powerful performance as well. And it gets even more powerful when you realize how sick he was over the last year or two of his life. And you look back at the performances he was able to give and especially something like he had in, uh, in five bloods where it's very, um, it, it, it's looking back on life as he's this character that has already died, who is being seen through these flashbacks and through these visions uh, it, it's it's just such a beautiful performance to look back on, and then you get just the vitality and the life that he had in in his performances. Levy and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, it, it truly was was a special year for someone who was uh, who was as sick as he was that none of us knew about. So uh, so yeah, number four, Chadwick Boseman, really for 2020, but his last one was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, obviously a big inspiration for this list, and I think pretty much everybody would agree that that was maybe the, well, arguably the pinnacle of his career other than Tishala, but the movie that, you know, probably his most critically acclaimed role for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Todd, number four. My number four is the last movie directed by Joseph L. Minkowitz, and that is Sleuth from 1972. Uh, he's probably more known as a writer than a director, honestly, but um, he continued to, or he, but, I don't know, he continued directing after he stopped writing, I guess. And uh, he earned an Oscar nomination with his last movie in 1972. I don't know why he stopped after this. Like, he was only in his, like, early 60s, and he lived until he was in his, like, late 80s, so I don't really know why he didn't make any more movies after that. He won four Oscars. I mean, he was an A-list director at the time, but Sleuth I talked about on our one location movies list and uh, it's always worth mentioning. It, it never really leaves that one house and it's it's intense and intelligent. And uh, yeah, I mean, looking at the remake, you could see how it would go wrong. But Joseph Mankiewicz was a pro and this is uh, an old timer and he made it an amazing movie. And it's a great movie to add to his list. And sad that he had to le- end on that, but I don't know why he stopped directing. I, I have not seen that one. Remake, not as good, right? Right. I mean, I appreciate the remake having Michael Caine play the other role. I mean, if if it could be handed down, that'd be cool, like, over years. But, I mean, it needs to be better than the remake was. All right. Number four, Zach. 
All right, number four, I'm going with another great European director in the 90s. Um, this one, uh, see, it, it, was, it was a problem because sometimes uh, these, especially European directors, made like TV movies that really, I don't know if they count. I'm deciding that um, this person's TV movie in 1995 does not count. It is Krzysztof Kieslowski for the Red, White, Blue trilogy. Um, these are a, a series of three movies that are extraordinary. Kieslowski, a legendary Polish filmmaker. He made the Decalogue in the 1980s, Camera Buff, a few other, uh, Double Life of Veronique in the early 90s. But Red, White, Blue is probably the film that he's most widely known, or a series of films he's most widely known for in the United States. Um, these are movies, uh, I believe Ebert included them on his top list of the, of the 1990s. Um, and they each star a really prominent actress, uh, international actress, Juliette Binoche, uh, Irene Jacob, and uh, who's the other one? Uh, 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 Julie Delpy. And um, they're all really good movies. They're all, uh, if you like the Decalogue, they're, they're definitely in that sort of vein about characters who interact through kind of twists of fate and happenstance. I think my favorite one is Red, which is about this younger woman who's a student and she's also a model. And she has this older man who kind of lives across the street and they sort of have this sort of strange um, connection that the movie never really addresses until the very end. Uh, and then um, the one of Julia Pinoche is really good too. She's this grieving uh, wife and mother who's, who's lost her, her husband and, and child in a car accident. Really awesome movies, strong sense of visual style. Kieslowski was a, a, a truly great filmmaker and um, I, th I know he had a screenplay for Sunshine that came out after he had died, but Red, White, Blue, again, is movies, movies that he's probably the most well-known for, um, at least abroad. Really, really cool stuff. All three of them worth checking out. I've never seen those movies. They're actually wow. available on uh, HBO Max right now. All three of them are. That may <laughs> need to be an assignment at, uh, at some point. Yeah, It's been on my list forever. I've just never gotten into it. And, and I find it funny you give me crap for picking Buster Keaton for the final film in a certain phase of his career, and yet you say a TV movie just doesn't count. Okay, uh, he I'm chooses a trilogy, and... <laughs> and and chooses a trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, according well, to IMDb, Kieslowski was the director of a 1995 TV movie called Short Working Day that has 300 votes and was an hour and 13 minutes. I don't think that counts. I think it does. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Better than he Buster also Keaton. directed a documentary short that uh, came out, or wrote a documentary short that came out in 2010. But that was a posthumous. I mean, that's like, I mean, like, that's like saying, you know, was Orson Welles' last movie The Other Side of the Mountain? Yes. Okay, well. Well, no, it was The Other Side of the Wind, but. Other Side of the Wind, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I said Angelina Jolie was in a mighty wind, so. Yeah. The other side of a mighty wind. Yeah. The other side of a mighty wind. Yeah. All right. Number three for me is uh, it's another director, but this is actually a, a, a true one. I'm probably one of this film's biggest defenders. I'm going with the last film directed by Mike Nichols, and that is Charlie Wilson's War uh, from 2007, starring uh, Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts. Uh, the story of a congressman. Oh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, the Oscar nominated Philip Seymour Hoffman, who learned Finnish. Um, and uh, Lovely. It, yeah, the story of a congressman who uh, helps orchestrate uh, the selling of uh, weapons to help uh, help an ally kind of third party fight a war in the Middle East. Um, 
And uh, it's based on a true story, which kind of led to some of the issues we've had in the Middle East through the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, it's a fascinating film. Uh, you have Tom Hanks as kind of this wheeler dealer congressman. Um, and, and of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, whenever he's a supporting role, he steals every scene he's in. Um, and uh, it, it's just a beautiful film. And it's uh, Aaron Sorkin's screenplay directed by Mike Nichols. I mean, it's kind of just a perfect combination of stuff there. And the fact that it was his last directed film, I mean, he he uh, he lived for seven more years, but it was the last thing he did. So um, I, I've always loved that movie. I think it's in my top five of 07. Uh, so yeah, Charlie Wilson's War is my number three. I'm yeah. not the biggest fan of the movie, but yeah, I mean, I can respect the pick. I mean, Mike Nichols. I, I respect the I respect Philip Seymour Hoffman and John Slattery in that movie, and really oh, just yeah. that one scene. But uh, I don't really remember anything else about the movie. Why am I in a weird Helsinki ship chief or whatever he says? <laughs> I've spent the last years learning Finnish, which will come in handy if I'm stationed in Finland. Uh, I remember his name was Gust. Yep. Yeah. All right. Todd, number says, three. He says something about like, oh yeah, and we know that uh, O'Banion's there screwing, uh, screw, screwing the, the boss's wife in room 1206. But let me ask you something. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible <laughs> performance. It's one of the best, one of the best on-screen rants of all time. I mean, Javier Bardem deserved the Oscar, but if we're talking one scene from a 2007 supporting actor, it might have to be that one. It's true. It's true. All right, Todd, number three. My number three uh, comes sort of from 2011. It is the last producing effort by both Anthony Minghella and Sidney Pollack. And it is, of course, Margaret. And uh, it's these are Oscar-winning filmmakers, and they got attached to this project. There is a huge cast. It's amazing that it actually went through six years of like post-production hell. But I think of it sort of like the day, uh, the day after yesterday is uh, one of those unfortunate cases in the industry, just a fabulous <laughs> movie with no home. Uh, but Margaret is, of course, the second best movie of the 2010s and one of the best movies that has ever been made. They didn't direct that many movies overall, but when they did produce something, it was a big deal. They pimped out The Reader and Michael Clayton, got them all the way to the Oscars, but uh, nothing was going to save Margaret necessarily because of how irresponsible the studio was. But you can't ask for a better movie to end on because it was the best movie they ever put their names on. So. Margaret is number three. Uh, yeah, that make that makes sense. That you would say that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like saying Brad Pitt's greatest achievement was The Departed, but okay. <laughs> Whatever. They, they were producers. They, they, I mean, the, they had nothing else to no, do with they were, and Michael they, Clayton. And they, they were they died, known as like, within a couple sure. months of each other. Way before Margaret actually ever got. I'm sure they had a lot to do with Margaret. Let's just put it I, that way. I appreciate the uh, the symmetry of them both having produced it, but which version did they see? If they saw a version, is the real question. <laughs> they they were probably the ones that shelved it. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. They were probably on set. They probably saw how great it was. Zach, number three. I'm just having visions of like Sidney Pollock and Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie and Sidney Pollock's just armed to his head with uh, with uh, Kenneth and just thinking, 
you know, what am I doing? Okay. Um, anyway, my number three. Yes, my number three. I actually have a tie for number three because I wanted to do. I I also have two people at number three. Um, it, but for different movies, but they're connected because they're both composers. And so I went with Bernard Herrmann's for his score for Taxi Driver and Elmer Bernstein for his score for Far From Heaven. These are the final scores written by two of the great movie composers of their generation. Both of them were well-known in the 50s and 60s for their collaborations with directors like uh, Hitchcock and, uh, let me see, I think Billy Wilder. Um, Bernstein did the music for Magnificent Seven and To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, but, you know, Taxi Driver, that score is in every single scene in that movie, and it is unmistakable. In fact, I feel like if, if you hear a saxophone solo, uh, slow jazz type music, people call it Taxi Driver-esque. The music for Far From Heaven is brilliant, too. I mean, it's this kind of over-the-top, lush 50s melodramatic music that, like the movie, could, at least on paper, come off as corny, but it's actually really great music, and it complements the movie perfectly. I don't know how... Uh, that really didn't get more attention from the Oscars, along with uh, the, the movie itself. Um, but um, although it wasn't on me, I guess, for best score. Uh, anyway, great composers, great scores, and uh, maybe they're both of their crowning achievements being their last films. It's hard to argue with that. However, I haven't seen Far From Heaven yet. Y yes, you have not. That's true. Continue to cheat. Okay, well, it does say Elmer Bernstein had some films later, but he died in 04, and I'm guessing that a lot of these films were, it says like unused music and music producer. I don't think that counts. We're just calling uh, Far From Heaven his, his final uh, masterwork. Is that what you're alluding to, Todd, when you say I'm a cheater? Sure. Okay. Or the fact that you had a tie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet another... <laughs> Yeah, you've now because you know you didn't just have a tie either. Two people, not two movies. <laughs> you've, had, you've had now mentioned six in two in three spots. So <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. No wonder you had right. to it down. Moving on to number two. All right, my last two are much more classic, uh, classic picks that are kind of no doubters. Um, and uh, number two, I guess you could give me crap because apparently he had a made for TV movie that came out after it that I didn't realize until just now, but <laughs> screw the it. Theme of this list. I don't care. <laughs> and, and, and this wasn't just like any, any, you know, made for TV movie. It won the golden globe for best uh, motion picture made for TV, but whatever. <laughs> Why don't you include that one? I didn't because I haven't seen it and I never, and I never knew it existed until like 10 seconds ago because it wasn't, Oh yeah, of course. Peter Finch's last film was Network, and so I went with it, and uh, yeah, but apparently he had a made-for-TV movie with, like, Charles Bronson after that. Whatever. I'm going with it. Peter Finch, uh, possibly uh, until 2008, the most uh, famous posthumous Oscar win uh, for his crazed, lunatic Howard Beale in, in Network. Uh, it, it is such a powerful performance, and he's so deranged in it, um, and you forget that he was, he was only 60 years old when he died. And you look at that and you look at how, how just mad he was. And, uh, he, he felt like someone much older, but, um, it, it, it's a, it's an incredible performance, an incredible film. 
that is, I think, one of the most important films ever made. And uh, and he's the heart of it. And the fact that he, it was really his last major uh, theatrical role is, uh, it's worth noting here. So number two, Peter Finch in Network. Sydney Lumet movie number two. Yep, there you go. I wouldn't have thought that we would have a repeat director <laughs> <laughs> on a movie about last directing. Okay. Good pick. <laughs> All right, Todd, number two. Uh, my number two is kind of a, a no doubter. It's Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, which sort of had to follow up Margaret with because it's another movie that had post production hell and. Um, you know, has a really expansive, amazing director's cut. Uh, Leone only made seven movies, and you could probably point to like four of them as being maybe his best. But this one, he completely just immerses himself in the material, and all his other ones pretty much were westerns. But this is like a crime saga. Today would be a total full TV series. It, it spans like fifty years of like mob connections. It's like beautifully shot. It's lyrical. Has one of Morricone's best scores. It's just a great last movie, and I, I imagine the the horrible release it had was probably has something to do with the fact that he didn't make any movies after that because but he did die at only age 60 so it's possible they could have made more movies but it's sort of a sobering last movie sort of like how you would feel like if the irishman was scorsese's last movie which uh, unfortunately it isn't uh but uh it's uh yeah it, it's a it's a great way for that director to end his end his career on what is und undoubtedly a masterpiece yeah, that is, of course, a great pick. I completely spaced out Sergio Leone. He he probably should be my number five, or at least in, in the honorable mention category, but that's obviously a great pick. And a tragic pick, too, because I think you're right. I think the way that the studio butchered that that movie probably impacted him for the rest of his life, like probably royally peeved at everybody involved in the making of it. Um, and, of course, it is a truly great movie that I think has pretty much been forever destroyed. That is true. So we're sensing a theme with your list, Todd, of movies that have been butchered by the studio that probably dro drove their filmmakers to their uh, demises. Although in the case of Margaret, it was their producers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ken Kenny kept making movies. That's true. All right. Zach, number two. Okay, for num my number two, uh, I'm going to TV because uh, why not? And uh, I'm going with an actress who I've never seen in anything else. This was her last role. And uh, any, I can't uh, not picture her in this role. She is uh, Livia Soprano, Tony Soprano's mother. The actress's name is Nancy Marchand. And she is amazing in the first two seasons of The Sopranos. She is like so calculating and so ruthless and yet does this great job of like trying to be like this sweet little old lady. But I think everybody knows that that is just an act, including Tony, including Carmela, including, uh, you know, everybody that's around this lady, Uncle Junior. Um, she is the one that is trying to pull the strings and literally she puts out a hit on her son uh, and uh, yet they still have family dinners together. And, you know, they, they still send uh, and, uh, Meadow and Anthony Jr. to go check on her. Um, you know, she starts a fire at the house. She has the, that's, this is how Tony gets involved with his Russian mistress is through the, the caretaker at his mother's house. Janice ev ev eventually gets involved at Nancy Marchand, man, just a, a, stro a stroke of, of, of a force of lightning in that role, uh, commanding the screen, going tete-a-tete -tete with uh, Jim Gandolfini. 
some amazing sequences, some amazing, like this is, this is the most violent, dangerous man um, in maybe TV history, and yet his mother one-ups him. She's amazing, and unfortunately she died. They do a kind of little CGI thing at the beginning of season three with her, but uh, man, talk about a truly great performance. And uh, based on some of the special features I've seen on Sopranos, um, Jim Gandolfini really loved the lady, and she had a great kind of uh, off-screen relationship with all the actors. Seemed, seemed like a really nice person, but a truly evil uh, character, and maybe the, one of the most evil characters in TV history. Especially she's in Naked Gun, so you have seen her in something else. Yeah, but I mean, I you know, I, I think this was the the role that brought her the most recognition. I think she'd been sort of a character actress, kind of like character actress Marco Martindale up to that point. Um, but that's, I think, how most people will, rem will remember her as Livia Soprano. I wasn't thinking we were going to TV because you eliminated TV from your other lists too, so uh, <laughs> or from your other picks. So <laughs> well, I, really, I, I really stand. confused by how you went about this act. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, when you yeah, you know, I spent too much time on this list, but I mean, like, and we also opened up to video games too. But come on, Todd. I mean, she's amazing in the first two seasons of that, right? Yeah, but I I was not thinking about TV. So well, I usually mean, I'm not either. But uh, she, I had to mention her. All and, right. And another thing that Terry hasn't seen. Nope. Nope. I think I think Margaret's the only thing that's been mentioned by either of you that I've seen. You've seen Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Okay, okay. Two. There's been two. Out of, well, with all of Zach's picks, out of like... <laughs> 25? 25, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in all, you know, 30 episodes she was on. I guess, yeah, that... Okay. <laughs> all Point right. Taken. Number one. Time for number one. And my number one is pretty undeniable. Uh, and there, there's no, there's no cheating. There's no bending the rules around this one. It is Spencer Tracy and guess who's coming to dinner. Uh, it, it, like I said, it, it's kind of the classic undeniable. You have to, you have to mention this, uh, this incredible movie uh, starring him and Catherine Hepburn and Sidney Poitier. Uh, it, it's just a brilliant film. It's a brilliant performance that really shows uh, who Spencer Tracy was. And the fact that he died, I was reading it here. He died 17 days after filming wrapped on guess who's coming to dinner because uh, he was just in the middle of heart failure it, it's just incredible to know that this is that this was his final thing he gave everything he had to this movie uh it just just brilliant just brilliant so uh so yeah spencer tracy in uh guess who's coming to dinner is my number one nice can't go wrong with that pick Yep, yep. Nothing you can say about it. All right, Todd, number one. My number one will come as no no surprise to you guys. That is John Cazale's last movie, The Deer Hunter, because it's, of course, the best movie ever made, so you can't end on a better movie than that. He uh, <laughs> he only made five movies. All of them were nominated for Best Picture. He never got singled out for a single award other than one Golden Globe nomination. But his performance in The Deer Hunter is just it's tragic to watch because you can see how he's like failing in health. You could kind of sense it from his character. He played a pushover really well, but it's like an emotional character at the same time. He holds his own with De Niro. He holds his own with Christopher Walken, who for my money gives the best performance that has ever been put on film. And there's sometimes I watch the movie and I just like watch Kazal. I like, I can, 
I, like he's not one of the most important characters, but you could see why he's like such an inspiration to so many actors. Like the documentary about Kazale is 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 amazing, and um, he could have been like a Philip Seymour Hoffman type of that time if if he had lived longer. But yeah, John Kazale and the Deer Hunter. That's my number one. Yeah, I think we all knew that was coming. What what was more interesting though is, do you know um, Michael Cimino's last movie? It was like Sun Chaser or something. It was something in the late yeah. 90s. Which, according to our records, you've actually seen. Yeah. But you didn't I didn't like know that that was his last movie. I mean, I, I knew that was one of them. But he just stopped making movies. <laughs> well, I don't think it would, I don't know if it was his choice, but I think after <laughs> Evans Gate didn't really have a choice. But <laughs> obviously, though, right. I mean, that's obviously a great pick. Although, I yeah. st when I think John Cazale, I think uh, Dog Day Afternoon, which I don't think Terry has seen either. I've but seen it. Have you? Yeah, like 2 a.m. in yeah, Foster 2 Hall or whatever. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Well. In, in our uh, movie marathon in college. I mean, John Cazale. We've talked about like five times on this podcast. Yeah, we have. We have. John Cazale's like, you know, the Sandy Koufax or Andrew Luck of his generation, you know? Like, he was only there for five five years or whatever, but uh, everything he did was was great. Maybe not, not Andrew Luck. That's not a good one. Sandy Koufax is a better comparison. Jim Brown. Yeah. Like yeah. Short career, but legendary. Okay, uh, my number right, one. Yeah, go for it. My number one is also director, uh, and I actually mentioned one of his films earlier, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. The director is Robert Mulligan, and his final film was The Man in the Moon from 1991. Um, one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, introduced the world to Reese Witherspoon, but Sam Waterston is also in it. He plays, uh, and, and Tess Harper, Gerald Strickland. It's sort of a story about first love. It takes place in the South in the 1950s. Um, definitely some overtones and narrative overlaps with uh, To Kill Mockingbird, although it's not really a, I wouldn't call it as serious a movie. It's a bit, it comes off as more of like a teen drama, but it's actually, I think, a great movie. Mulligan, um, he actually uh, lived quite a bit, uh, many years after the movie. Uh, the movie kind of tanked at the box office, didn't really have a big release. According to Wikipedia, he kind of fought the studio on um, attempts by the studio to cut it for airplane viewing, strangely enough. And I think he was kind of cast out of the systems um, afterwards. He also was an alcoholic, sadly. Uh, he died in 2008, but um, he had some um, legendary movies, uh, Summer 42, same time next year. But The Man on the Moon um, is, for me, you know, a top 20, top 30 movie, uh, tremendous movie, and uh, something that I always associate with him. So uh, one of the most underrated uh, films of the early 90s. Had to go with that one. Yeah, when I came across that, I was like, yeah, it's going to be Zach's number one. If it isn't, <laughs> then I'm going to call him out. And fortunately, you, I didn't have to do that. Well, it was clear cut, you know, no, no TV movies in Europe for uh, Robert Mulligan that we know of. All right, let's move on to some honorable mentions. Uh, I've got a few here. Uh, I had John Cazale in The Deer Hunter. Um, another one name that was mentioned, not for this, so uh, James Gandolfini for The Drop uh, I had on here as well. Um, I also had uh, Massimo Troisi for Il Postino, which is a very similar circumstance to uh, to what happened to Spencer Tracy. Uh, I was just looking at it here. Apparently, he died 12 hours after the camera stopped rolling on that movie. Um, and then a couple that are that also had some TV movies that I felt apparently mattered a little more than Peter Finch's. Henry Fonda on Golden Pond, Jason Robards' Magnolia. 
they they had some TV a TV movie that came out after those those movies, but what can you do? All right, Todd. Uh, so Stanley Kubrick did Eyes Wide Shut, which I think is one of his best movies. You have Bob Fosse directed Star Eighty. Oh, that's a good one. Which is an amazing movie. Edward Yang's last movie was E.E. Yeah. Uh, totally. James Dean, of course, ended on Giant, which I think is his best achievement. And if we were talking TV, the one I was going to say was Cicely Tyson uh, doing How to Get Away with Murder. Because, like, every season she had, like, maybe three scenes. And she would always get an Emmy nomination for Best Guest Actress in a Drama because she is that amazing of, a, of an actress. And, I mean... The show was great. It became not so great, but uh, I would say that that being her last thing is not a is not is no no nothing to sneeze at. All right, Zach. Any honorable mentions? Yeah, uh, Richard Farnsworth and the Straight Story, um, Jessica Tandy and Nobody's Fool, uh, Ellen Klimov for uh, Come and See, Pure Paolo Pasolini for Sallow, Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Taylor for The Flintstones. Not ironically. Uh, Marlon Brando for the score. Um, uh, Michael Apted for 63 Up, even though I haven't seen it yet. Louis Bunuel for this, that obscure object of desire. Adrian Shelley for Waitress. Um, Mike Wolf Snyder for Nomadland. Originally, I was going to put him on the list, but I think uh, Todd would have called me out for that or something uh, as, the, as the sound guy. Um, why, why would uh, I have called you out? Like, that would have actually I don't know. been a take that qualified for the list. Well, though, another reason I did is I think he has upcoming movies that are coming oh. out. But if you actually, if you read about him, he was very much involved with Chloe Zhao and the sound design. And she had a quote somewhere where she talks about how they actually recorded like longer stretches of like room tone and wind tones. And he was really instrumental in coming up with those ideas. So like he, he wasn't just some arbitrary guy. Like he had a lot of artistic, um, you know, uh, uh, collaboration in the, in the movie. I also had OJ Simpson and Naked Gun 33 and third, Paul Walker and Furious 7. And the guy who wrote Confederacy of Dunces. But he wasn't in a movie. He just wrote the book. So that that would have been like my Margaret pick where the like it didn't come out until after they died. Yeah. Pretty so. much. All right. Well, now it's time for us to try and guess Adam's list. Which, I mean, we always we'll say this is impossible, but it's always impossible. All right, here's mine. Uh, number five, I got Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Number four, Richard Harris for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Number three, Sean Connery in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, number two, wow. uh, Heath Ledger for the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And number one, Carrie Fisher for either Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker, depending on how he interprets it, because Rise of Skywalker was all archival footage. But... Um, Last Jedi was the last so sort of like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mockingjay Part Two kind of thing. Yeah, well, but but it was like the entire, yeah, the entire film. He had at least done some shooting for Mockingjay Part Two, so that's All my right. list. Todd. So I say number five, Marilyn Monroe in The Misfits. I know he loves her. Uh, number four, Henry Fonda in On Golden Pond, which apparently he's seen even though it's not on the website. Number three, Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. Number two, his son Brandon Lee in The Crow. And number one, I'm going to say that he thinks Dead the Dark Knight is Heath Ledger's last movie. I was thinking of going with that. I really was. <laughs> Zach? Uh, I went with number five, Stan Lee in either Avengers Endgame or Spider-Verse or something like that. Number four, Luke Perry in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number three, Phil Hartman in Small Soldiers. Number two, Carrie Fisher in one of the Star Wars movies. And number one, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. 
same reason as Todd. <clears throat> All right. Here we go. Adam, he says, researching this, I realize I have a lot of blind spots on some big actors and directors. Awesome. Well, okay, it's just saying the word research doesn't doesn't bode well for my and Todd's theory. Because I, yeah, I didn't yeah, think yeah. he did any research. Well, he always does some. All right, honorable mentions. Uh, Phil Hartman for Small Soldiers. Yes! <laughs> Knew it. Uh, Vincent Price, The Thief and the Cobbler. Uh, Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon. <sighs> And uh, Chester Bennington in Saw the Final Chapter. Wow. There you go, Todd. All right. His actual list. Number yeah. five, Brandon Lee for The Crow. Yes. Nice. I got one. Um, number four, Dominique Dunn for The Exorcist. I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is either. <laughs> number three, Cecil B. DeMille for The Ten Commandments. Oh. oh, the return of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah, forgot about that. Uh, number two, Conrad Hall, cinematographer for Road to Perdition. The only time it actually got mentioned, even though it's behind Todd's head. And number one, John Cazale, the guy or the deer, deer hunter. Nice. Yeah. So Todd wins. I mean, he's the only one that got anything in the list. And he had However, the poster behind it. Uh, and yeah, and he's got any road to However, Conrad Zach is the one that said that Conrad Hall might come up. And I said Phil Hartman. And you said Phil Hartman. That was quite the poll. But he got both of the both the Lees in there. So yeah. All right. That was my uh 28 and a half for the win. <laughs> Zach is 22. Terry is 17. <laughs> You're 28 and a half. <laughs> oh man. Okay, moving on. It's trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And I actually won trivia last time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And with that meant I got to assign you guys stuff to, to talk about. So let's hear, let's hear what you thought of what I assigned you. We're going to start with Zach. All right, so Terry assigned me uh, the right stuff, not the novel, not the book, or the movie, but the TV series. It's now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Terry knows that I'm a big fan of the... I mean, it's about space, so we're both fans of it, right? But I also uh, knew if I didn't do this, you were never going to watch it. It's probably true. Um, <laughs> so the right stuff is based on the Tom Wolfe, very loosely based on the Tom Wolfe novel and the movie. It's almost nothing like the movie. Um, the first, you know, the movie's three hours long, and the first hour of the movie is all about Chuck Yeager's attempt to break the sound barrier. It has almost nothing to do with NASA or the space program, but it uses that as sort of an impetus for uh, the, the the you know the the motivation to go to space. Um, so that they completely excised. Um, the original Right Stuff movie is quirky and kind of weird. It's almost like if Stanley Kubrick had directed it. It has this sort of like latent. Uh, cynicism about American institutions in the 50s and 60s. This TV series, on the other hand, is very, very mainstream, very much more uh, geared toward a mass populist viewing. Um, it doesn't necessarily make it uh, worse or better, it's just different. Um, but basically, uh, we get these, uh, you know, a crew of uh, uh, several test uh, flight pilots uh, who, you know, if you know uh, Apollo 13 and the right stuff in these other space movies, you know their names. Uh, Alan Shepard, John Glenn, Gordon Cooper. Those are the three test pilots who they spend the most time on over the course of the show. 
Um, I have to say, it was kind of distracting watching the first two episodes in their portrayal of Alan Shepard, played by Jake uh, McDormand, because for whatever reason, the filmmakers have decided to turn him into like Don Draper in Mad Men. Like he has a serious <laughs> stick man game. I was not expecting that. You know, yeah. uh, and Al Shepard, I, I don't believe in real life that is very accurate, uh, but uh, because he had too many ear infections, of course. But uh, hey, whatever, you know, uh, more power to him. I did like the, the John Glenn portrayal by Patrick J. Adams. The uh, Gordon Cooper stuff was kind of interesting. I didn't know that much about his wife. I feel like the show very consciously is trying to not make this about um, a bunch of straight white dudes. So they bring in the Gordon Cooper character, whose wife was also a pilot, and they're going kind of through marriage problems as the series begins. Um, it's an interesting show. I like the quirkiness of the of the original movie a little bit more, but I can understand why they'd want to update some things and maybe excise certain other things. It looks very Netflixy. There's nothing like, I mean, First Man I loved because it had that home movie feel, especially in the first hour. And there's nothing that really connects the emotional lives of the characters with the training for the for uh, the Mercury Seven program. In fact, there was almost no footage or scenes where they actually did any training. The first two episodes are all involving just again their personal lives and their kind of backstories. And so I, I'm hoping as I continue to watch it, because I do want to continue to watch it, that the show gets a little bit more into the Mercury Seven program. But uh, you know, not not a terrible show, and I'm glad you assigned it to me. I just Al Shepard, man, wow. <laughs> I know. Wow. Burgess, almost Burgess Meredith level. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, and, and, and Gordon Cooper a little bit too. A little bit, a little bit. He's got his issues. I mean, he's um, kind of like, if, he's kind of like living out his own version of, uh, of uh, the killing of two lovers. Like he's just, he's got this rage about uh, his family getting torn apart. I realize you won't get that reference because you haven't seen it. And yeah. Todd hasn't seen the right stuff. So I'm just confusing everybody, but uh, I'm, uh, it's interesting. I'll put it that way. I like it so far. Good, good. I'm glad you like Yeah, I, it's totally different than the movie, but it, it's just fun to see. I, I love watching the dramatized versions of that time in history and the starts of NASA and all that stuff. Uh, interestingly enough, so Eric Layden, who plays Chris Kraft in, in the show, one of the, one of the main two guys that are like starting up NASA in it, um, the, there's an Apple TV Plus show called For All Mankind, which is the the big what if the Russians beat us to the moon. Uh, he plays Gene Kranz in that. So uh, he, depending on which one you're watching, you're going to get confused on on who he is in, in uh, Mission Control. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it's a fun show. It's a fun show. And and it does get more into, into everything. It gets into the ear infections um, and, uh, and, and all that as, as well. Uh, yeah, so first season's out on Disney Plus, and uh, I I knew yeah I knew if I didn't assign it to you, you weren't going to watch it. So I'm glad you watched. It. I'm glad you liked it. I think there's only going to be one season, right? I hope there's going to be more. It sets it up to have more. So yeah, I hope it nice, keeps going. It's nice seeing Patrick Fl uh, Fischler uh, back in it. You know, I mean, aka the guy from Mulholland Drive. I mean, he was amazing in Mulholland Drive. It, it's cool to see him here. I do miss the idiosyncratic nature of the movie, though. I mean, the movie, like, the movie was subversive. This is not subversive at all. Like, you, you know, it's like it's like uh, when Phil Seymour often tells young, young William Miller, you know, you, there's nothing controversial about you. That's the way I feel about this TV show. There's nothing controversial about it. Yeah, uh, that's that's probably true. But it is, it is Disney Plus, so. True. 
Although, I mean, the, the, the Stickman parts, I was a little surprised even in, in uh, being a Disney Plus product. I guess that maybe that was the refreshing part of the show. But yeah, I hope they I hope they keep going because they, they set it up and have a lot more stories to tell. Uh, all right. Cool. Well, Todd, moving on to you. What did you have to watch? Uh, Terry had me watch the Gene Kelly, Stanley Donnan directed movie. It's always fair weather from 1955, which he reviewed on episode 71 of the podcast. Hey, uh, there we go. It's about three soldiers after World War II who kind of go on a bender at a bar um, when they get home and they agree that they're going to meet 10 years to the day after that uh, at the same spot to uh, check in on one another. And they are all sort of disappointed when they do that, that, how the other two turn out and the spark of their friendship isn't really the same as what it was. But a TV producer played by Sid Charisse uh, catches wind of the situation is she decides she's going to put them on TV in, in like a sort of reality TV type program kind of thing. And Gene Kelly is awesome. He's just, he's so much, he's got so much joy when he's doing these kind of movies in his performance and in his dance numbers. Like he is the best of the old Hollywood actors for musicals and directors for musicals. Um, the story is pretty unique. It seems like a little ahead of its time. The finale seemed like it, it was almost like the inspiration for Inglorious Bastards or something like it was it was really kind of chaotic and crazy with the, how many people die um but the actors are all great dan daly i think looks exactly like matthew lillard i couldn't stop thinking about that throughout the movie i was like <laughs> yeah that, that he'd be in the remake sid Charisse is always great and gene kelly is awesome and he has this like humphrey bogart type look in the movie like i really wish he would have played more mobsters because he absolutely could have done that uh there's some really creative music numbers like uh I, it makes you wonder why they didn't use like trash can lids as as tap dancing shoes before this and i know uh, right it was that was a really cool scene and like um the, the the fight scene at the end like with like their dancers choreographing a fight scene it's like chaotically entertaining it's like a jackie chan scene or something with like what they use for like sound and and what they what they what they're doing it's kind of fun it's a really charming movie so i'm i'm giving it three stars I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked it. I, I know you're a big uh, Singing in the Rain fan. This is one of the other movies that Kelly and Donna did together. Um, and and yeah, it, it, it every time it's on, it's worth just at least turning on for the first like 10 minutes to watch the uh, yeah the trash can tap dancing scene. And, uh, and yeah, it was probably the happiest drunken scene I've ever seen in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they go back to the bar like three times. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's a great movie. It's a great movie. And uh, again, Gene Kelly and to see him and Sid Charisse in a little bit of an expanded relationship instead of just the random number in, in Singing the Rain is great, too. Now, it, it, it's it's such a fun movie. Um, and I've realized the only way I'm going to find stuff that I've seen and you haven't is just keep going back to classic musicals. So uh, <laughs> that's what that's what I kind of got to go to. So there we go. Cool. Well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed. Sounds like both of you enjoyed your picks. That's good. Now it's trivia time, and I get a host. And you always hate it when I host, because you always hate what I pick. But you're probably going to hate this, too. Uh, all right, so uh, we're going to do some Oscar trivia. And it's going to be slightly different than like the classic Oscar trivia we've done in the past. But this is going to be in honor of uh, this weekend marked the 80th anniversary of the start of Joe DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak. 
So, uh, the theme of this trivia is going to be 56. So, we are going to start by looking at the 1956 uh, Oscars. These are the well, these are the 1957 okay. Oscars honoring the movies in 1956. And here's how we're going to do it this time. Uh, you need to give me, we can go back and forth, give me a movie nominated for a major Oscar at, uh, at, at that ceremony. So major Oscar, we're saying picture, any of the actings, directing, or writing. Uh, if you give me a nominee, you get a point. If you give me a winner, any one that won in any of those categories or multiple, you get two points. So the winner gets you one, or the nominee gets you one. Winner gets you two. It doesn't matter how many it was nominated for. If it was nominated at least once, you get one point. If it won at least once, you get two points. So nineteen, not, not people. Movie. The movie, yes. And these are the 1956 movies. And you're just talking about the, the, the main eight categories, right? Uh, yes. Actually, I think we're going main nine because there was original story back then, too. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there were 24 movies nominated in in those categories picture actor actress supporting actor supporting actress director original screenplay adapted screenplay and original story 24 movies let's see how many you can get we are going to start with zach uh, around the world in 80 days around the world in 80 days one best picture at one adapted screenplay and was nominated for uh director so you get two points todd the ten commandments the Ten Commandments was nominated for Best Picture, and that was it of the main categories. Correct. Zach. The King and I. The King and I was nominated for Picture. It won Best Actor for Yul Brenner, uh, nominated for Best Actress, nominated for Director. So that's two more points for Zach. Todd. Giant. Giant. Giant was nominated for Picture, nominated for Actor James Dean and Rock Hudson. Nominated for Supporting Actress, Mercedes McCambridge. Won Best Director and nominated for Adapted Screenplay. So two points to Todd. Zach. Anastasia. Anastasia. Ingrid Bergman won Best Actress. Two points. Todd. I... 56 is not a year I know very well. Like I, I mean, around that year, maybe. I, I don't have any others. Todd is out. Zach, do you have any more? Written on the Wind. Written on the Wind was nominated for Supporting Actor Robert Stack, and it won Supporting Actress for Dorothy Malone. That's two more points. Anything else? Uh, Lust for Life. Lust for Life was nominated for Actor Kirk Douglas, won Supporting Actor for Anthony Quinn, and nominated for Adapted Screenplay. Two more points. The Red Balloon. The Red Balloon. One original screenplay. That is correct. Two points. And Covadis. I don't think that was nominated. Covadis was not nominated. All right. Well, that was that was good. The only uh, winner you did not get was the Brave One. One original story. 
Friendly you know, Persuasion was a, a Best Dalton Picture Trumbo. nominee. Yeah, Dalton Trumbo, but blacklisted. So yeah. it was like, yeah, someone else. Um, Friendly Persuasion was nominated for four Oscars and uh, one of the Best Picture. Anthony Perkins, William Wyler, Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, The Bad Seed had three acting Uh, nominations. Patty McCormick. Uh, The Bold and the Brave, Mickey Rooney was nominated and had original screenplay. Uh, Let's see here. Any other? That was all that were double nominated. Um, Todd, the Eddie Duchin story was nominated for original story that year. Um, baby doll got three nominations actress supporting actress adapted screenplay okay so right now the baby doll is a terrible movie by the way unwatchable (laughs) nice i had to watch it when i wrote my thesis it was pretty terrible okay so zach is currently winning 12 to 3 uh so now we're we're moving on them apples todd so we talked about the 1956 oscars now we're moving on to the 56th edition of the Oscars, which was 1983 movies. The 1983 movies, the uh, ceremony was in 1984. Again, same thing. There were 16 movies that were nominated in picture, actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, uh, director, original screenplay, and adapted screenplay. There was no longer an original story category. We started with Zach last time, so this time we are starting with Todd. 1983. 1983. Terms of Endearment. Terms of Endearment is correct. It won picture. It won actress. It was nominated for actress. It won supporting actor. It had another nomination for supporting actor. It won director. It won adapted screenplay. Two points for Todd. There's There go mo- most of the winners, too. <laughs> Zach. Tender Mercies. Tender Mercies, picture nominee, winner for best actor, Robert Duvall, nominated for best director, winner of original screenplay. Two points for Zach. The Year of Living Dangerously. The Year of Living Dangerously, winner supporting actress, Linda Hunt. That is correct. Two points. Uh, the TV series I just watched. The Right Stuff. The right stuff. Correct. Nominated for picture. Nominated Sam Shepard, supporting actor, in the role that was not involved in the TV show. Chuck Yeager. TV One point. show Fanny and Alexander. <laughs> uh, that is also correct. Nominated for director and original screenplay. Educating Rita. Educating Rita, nominated for actor, Michael Caine, actress, Julie Walters, and adapted screenplay. Correct. The Big Chill. The Big Chill, nominated for picture, supporting actress, Glenn Close, and original screenplay. Correct. The Dresser. The Dresser, nominated for picture, actor, Tom Courtney, actor, Albert Finney, director, Peter Yates, and adapted screenplay. Correct. Yentl. Yentl, nominated for Supporting Actress, Amy Irving. Correct. Cross Creek. (laughs) Cross Creek, nominated Supporting Actor, Rip Torn, Supporting Actress, Alfre Woodard. Correct. I think Silkwood. Silkwood, nominated Actress, Meryl Streep, Supporting Actress, Cher, 
director Mike Nichols and original screenplay? Uh, I might be out of it. Uh, We've got one, two, three, four, five left. Can't believe you got Cross Creek. That. <laughs> oh wait, six. Wait, no, wait. No, it's five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, we got five left. Um. Oh, it's that stupid Peter O'Toole movie. Uh, does that count? That does not count for anything. <laughs> it's not. Right. The, it's not the stunt man, right? That's nineteen eighty. No, I no. can't remember. I'm out. All right, he's out. Todd, I, I got nothing else. He's got nothing else. Okay, so the ones you missed, uh, the trail was nominated for adapted screenplay. I know what that is. Uh, Ruben Ruben, best uh, actor, Tom Conti, and adapted screenplay. Uh, test damn British movies. Testament nominated for uh, best Jane actor, Alexander. Jane Alexander. <laughs> Uh, to Be or Not to Be, supporting actor Charles Durning, and War Games, nominated for original screenplay. I say we did pretty good on that, Todd. I mean, you did. Those, were, well, those were tough ones. You did pretty good. You did pretty good. Okay. War Games uh, and Oscar nominee. <laughs> I have one more category here that I was going to have as a, as a uh, tiebreaker, but we're just going to go with it because I think it, it might be stupid, but it could also be fun. Uh, this is one where you're going to have to write down answers and uh, and show them to the camera. Um, this this category is called 56 or 1956. So I have a list of 10 actors, and you have to tell me whether they are 56 years old or they were born in 1956. Okay. So that means that they'd be 65? 65, yeah. 66, yeah. okay. Yep. So 56 or 1956. Okay. I, I appreciate the effort, Terry. This is yeah. more effort than I put into <laughs> coming up with <laughs> Or if they were born in 65, or if there are you could call it 65 or 65. I, I could, but that that would that would uh, not be the DiMaggio theme here for the 56 <laughs> game hitting streak. Okay, 56 or 1956. The first actor is Andy Garcia. 56 or 1956. <sighs> Zach says 56. Todd says. Uh, <laughs> no, it's. I think 56, we're both wrong. You are both wrong. It's yeah. 1956. Godfather 3 was 90. He, would, he, he was older than 25 in that movie. Shoot, uh, I should have thought about that. older than a 25-year-old. Next if I one. thought about Godfather 3, I, I wouldn't have said that. All right. That's what I was thinking about, and that's why I said that. I, don't think, I was like, oh, you can't be that much older. Next one, Brian Cranston. 56 or 1956. Todd says 1956. Yeah, I say that too. Zach says it too. You are correct. It is 1956. Next one, Christoph Waltz. 56 or 1956. You have them both written down now, so just which one are you going to show? Todd says 56. Zach says 1956. Right. Zach is correct. Next one, Clive Owen. 56 or 1956. Correct, it is 56. You both got that one right. That one was easy. Uh, next one, John Leguizamo. 56 or 1956? Zach has his answer locked in. He says 56. Todd says 1956. He's 56 years old. I'm terrible at judging <laughs> ages of people. And, the, like, and what's great is this is close enough. It's close enough right now that 
that it makes it difficult. And if you told me he was 45, you told me he was 65, I would believe you either way. <laughs> and that, that's the problem. Like, I'm terrible at judging ages. All right, next one. Keanu Reeves. 56 or 1956? 56. There's no way he was 56. no way he was almost 40 when he was doing speed, okay? Jack Traven <laughs> is in his 20s. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah. I was I was thinking like in like the river's edge. <laughs> like he was like... <laughs> or like parenthood. He would have been he would have been 32 in parenthood. It's a little old. Like, yeah, like John Travolta in Greece or something, yeah. <laughs> Next one, Mel Gibson. 56 or 1956. We both say 1956. You're both correct. Uh, next one, Patrick Warburton. That's random. It is random. Uh, but it's really difficult yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, I think That's I agree I with Todd. You are incorrect. It is He is 56 years old. Oh. So that means he was in his like early 20s or something in Seinfeld? Apparently. Late apparently. 20s. But he was on the later seasons, though, to be fair. All right. Okay. Next one, Robert Downey Jr., 56 or 1956. We have both of you say 56. That is correct. And last but certainly not least. I'm getting my Mr. ass kicked in this Mr. Trivia. Tom Hanks, 56 or 1956. You're both correct, 1956. So with the final score of 26 to 17, Zach wins trivia. I think it's also, should I, should I say, I believe you did 1983 Oscars when we were in Vegas. I think we've done that trivia done before. That before. And I believe I beat Todd that time too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's how we know Cross Creek. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's how I know Cross Creek, which feels like it needs to be a come to the stable movie, but it probably is only available on VHS. Well, Rip Torn and Alfred Woodard. I mean, hey, we can do that. That was fun, though. I, I, I thought I liked that one. I, I had fun coming up with those categories. I, I, 56 game hitting streak. 80 years ago. Pretty cool. Okay. Time to wrap this up. Quote of the day time. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Zach, you won trivia. You get to go first. Well, that would be great if I had a quote. Oh, I he think doesn't have come a... back to me. <laughs> All right. He, he defers to the end. Well, Todd, you lost trivia. You get to go first. <laughs> Uh, so I'll quote John Cazale. He said at one point, I sometimes wonder if the inability to find oneself makes one's, one seek oneself in other people in characters. And that pretty much describes him as an actor, I think. Very nice. Very nice. I have a good one now if you want to go to me. Okay, go for it. Uh, it's the last line of the movie, The Right Stuff. The narrator says, the Mercury program was over. Four years later, astronaut Gus Grissom was killed along with astronauts White, White and Chaffee when a fire swept through their Apollo capsule. But on that glorious day in May 1963, Gordo Cooper went higher, faster, and further than any American. 22 complete orbits around the world. He was the last American to ever go into space alone. And for a brief more moment, Gordo Cooper became the greatest pilot anyone had ever seen. Spoiler alert, if you've only gotten through two episodes of The Right Stuff like I have. So... Do you want to give? Do you want me to give you a spoiler for how the season ends? 
Um, like, like how far it goes. Let's. I'll, I'll. It'll be incentive for me to actually keep watching. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, my quote uh, that was one that I was that was rolling around in my head all the time as I was going through trying to find uh, people for our uh, our power rankings and the and how much how much crap some legendary actors and directors made at the end of their careers. And uh, it made me think of a quote from uh, what we thought Adam's uh, pick for uh, Heath Ledger's last movie was going to be The Dark Knight. And the quote is, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And I, I feel like that that describes many legendary actors and directors in the crap they put out at the end of their careers. They live what? too long. Like Keen Terrence Malick. <laughs> Terrence Malick. <laughs> Gene Hackman. Yeah. Billy no, Wilder. <laughs> you could you could go through a lot of them. You really you could. You say Terrence Malick. Well, you didn't like Hidden Life? No, that one was okay. The other ones were, were pretty bad, though. Or, or or the fact that Jimmy Stewart's last role was in Fievel Goes West. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So that's what I'm going with. And that's what that's all that I was thinking the whole time. Either Surprise, none of us said John Wayne for the shootest. He's really good in that movie. Yeah, that's Never one of my it. favorite of his movies. I, that was close to being mentioned. All right. Well, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, again, make sure you subscribe, rate, review. We'll be back at you next week with uh, another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your cross behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.